Hello, and welcome to another episode of CKX Questions. This summer, I had the opportunity to sit down for a conversation with Edgar Villanueva, member of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina, chair of the Board of Directors of Native Americans and Philanthropy, vice president of programs and advocacy at the Schott Foundation for Public Education, and author of Decolonizing Wealth. I first had the opportunity to hear Edgar speak as part of the Decolonizing Wealth Canadian Tour, presented by the Circle on Philanthropy and Aboriginal Peoples in Canada. At the event and in this conversation, I was struck by his clear and powerful articulation of a different path forward, one that welcomes our full selves into critical reflection and action to leverage philanthropy in the pursuit of just futures. It was an absolute honor and privilege to share this space with Edgar, and I'm excited to share our conversations with you here now. I'd love to start actually with the teaching that you share in the book, you not choosing the medicine, but the medicine choosing you. And in the work, you also speak to your own realization that that money is the medicine that's chosen you with the book becoming really in so many ways more than a book. It's this growing, I think, momentum and, and movement around this conversation. I'm just wondering what the reception to the book and some of these ensuing conversations, uh, what they've meant for you personally around that reflection that you shared in the book uh, and how they've shaped or shifted uh, the role that you see yourself playing in the work moving forward. Absolutely. So I... Um... I think I shared in the book how I grappled at some level with accepting the fact that money was my medicine. Um, That was due in part to a history um, of of baggage, probably, that I had associated with money and wealth, coming from a family and from a community that did not have wealth and power, and seeing the disparities um, or differences in our community uh, between those who had money and those who did not. Uh, my mom was and actually still is a domestic worker, so I grew up watching her uh, clean the houses of wealthy people, uh, take care of fellow elderly folks, mostly affluent folks in our community. And although uh, these folks were you know, extremely nice and uh, really good to my family, I understood that there was a difference um, in access and power and influence that they had um, in the world that I didn't have. Um, and also came from sort of a, a spiritual faith tradition that, in a sense, presented a negative connotation with that type of lifestyle, with, with having like that much wealth. Mm-hmm. And so for me to get to a place where I felt that, uh, you know, money is my medicine, you know, was a, a major um, shift and kind of explore, exploration that I had to do to come to terms with that. And I think that uh, what this book gave me the opportunity to do was just that journey of really exploring, well, um, it's not about money and wealth, but it's actually how we as humans have used money and wealth either to um, colonize or oppress or dominate or to use resources in a way that actually helps facilitate relationship and connection. Um, so for me, with this journey over the past year, uh, the book came out last October, and um, I've had the opportunity to travel around the world and to have many conversations with, with thousands of folks, actually, 
Um, I have uh, really settled into the, the, the place, I think, of my calling to do this work um, as a, an evangelist, so to speak, um, mm. um, helping us all think differently about money and wealth and to liberate ourselves from money um, and to think about how can we shift our thinking um, uh, from uh, an economy or, I think, uh, a way of um, moving money uh, that is um, exploitive or um, extractive to one that help, helps to regenerate and repair. And uh, I, I think that I'm so hopeful because I've seen uh, many, many people resonate with the message, adopt the message, and actually make changes and commitments to using money and wealth differently. Mm. No, that's that's really it's exciting to see how this is this is taking shape. And uh, I guess just wondering then where you see, I guess, this work and, and these conversations going next. You know, I hope to um, continue to have conversations because I think they're important. Um, I do want to move beyond the conversation, and I'll share a little bit of my thoughts there. Um, but we often, um, as, as communities, have been very uncomfortable having the conversations that we're having now about race and power and history and so um, I think, especially in, in the U.S., we haven't had a process of truth and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to keep having the conversation and pushing for, um, you know, sort of speaking that truth and educating folks about the history. But what I want to see next is uh, really to, to roll out um, more resources and more tools to support people in thinking about how to operationalize uh, what we're talking about in the book and that framework. So I've had many, many investors and funders say, um, you know, Edgar, this book was amazing. It, uh, you know, I, I feel compelled to do something, but they feel stuck um, mm. in terms of really thinking through how to operationalize the principles uh, either in a foundation or a different type of organization that moves money. And so we are going to put out a toolkit, um, a workshop by the end of the year. Um, we're looking at building out online curriculum. It's really interesting because I, um, you know, I have a Google alerts on the book, so I occasionally get notifications that uh, there are folks who are taking this book and really building out uh, work around it, which is fantastic. Um, I saw in one alert that there was a, a, a college in Portland, Oregon, that has an entire class, a semester on this book, which I'm, I would love to actually take the class because I just wonder what you're talking about, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think, you know, there, there is a demand for um, more support and thinking through how to operationalize this. And, and particularly, you know, I work in the sector of philanthropy, institutional foundations. We, uh, um, you know, so I'm, I'm wondering if there are ways that I might support, um, you know, through a workshop, through a training, through an institute. So that's coming next, really practical steps. Um, I'm going to continue to advocate that folks sign on to a commitment I think many times people who have wealth or privilege, um, it's very easy for those types of folks to intellectualize um, and want to uh, study the problem more and to, to fully understand issues before they respond. Mm. Um, and uh, so I'm going to you know, push back on that inclination a little bit and encourage folks to take action. You know, action through every choice point that we have in these institutions to make change, but also action in moving money. Ultimately, what I care about um, 
is seeing resources being reallocated and redistributed in a way that represents uh, the values uh, in the book. I want people to have personal transformation. I want people to have conversations with their families. Um, and all of us need to um, be on a path of healing, whether we are indigenous or a person of color or come from uh, descendants of, of um, colonizers or settlers. Um, we all need to be engaged in healing. And there are lots of places where that work is happening. And, um, you know, I want to continue to lift that up. But hopefully, uh, the, the action that I want to see is for folks to begin to put move money into communities that are a bit marginalized by philanthropy. It's interesting. I was reading reading your book alongside Anand Giridharadas's book, Winners Take All. His assessment of, you know, we talk a lot about changing the world, but we're not talking about the ways in which those that hold power just shifting the status quo enough to, to remain relevant or palatable or whatever it might be. On that front, as we're looking to kind of these next steps, and it's it's great to see and hear about some of these these frameworks and workshops that are coming, how do we continue to hold those in power, particularly in, in the philanthropic community, accountable, not just for a year or for a decade, but really for a generation? What does what does that look like for you in terms of getting to the to the real heart of, of the change that we want to see? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I uh, philanthropy as a sector has sort of had this default position of um, self-correction. We want to study the problem ourselves, do the research, put out best practices, and we say that we will change because we are good people. And um, there has, that has happened at some level. There are great studies and organizations who are think tanks around this industry. And as best practices come out, many folks who try to align and operationalize my fear is that uh, we're not going to get there fast enough around racial equity um, and parity in our grant making on our own. There's just way too much white privilege and uh, barriers to understanding. And the folks who are driving uh, those conversations and those decisions are still predominantly white. And so uh, I think what has to happen is that we have to have an organizing strategy that is an inside strategy and an outside strategy. Mm. Um, The inside strategy for me is uh, folks like myself, people who come from lived experience, um, the people who understand the connection between race and power um, and are working on the inside to disrupt, to dismantle, to change um, and push forward in a way that is... um, Um, I hate to say appropriate, that's not the right word, but there's a certain way to maneuver inside of of these walls where you can actually um, be heard and have your, and be seen as a thought leader. And so more folks have to be uh, on the inside of philanthropy, have to be willing to be bold. Um, It is a culture that often people are afraid to speak truth, um, even afraid to question the status quo uh, because of the, the way that, um, you know, there's just a concentration of power, and if you push too hard, they will show you the door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. um, but I'm hoping that, um, and, and I've heard from a lot of folks that the work I'm doing has really inspired inspired folks to, to speak up. And we have to continue to, to really push and change the culture of these institutions to be places where people of color and indigenous leaders can feel comfortable to lead in our own way. And uh, I'm very hopeful about that as the number of people of color in philanthropy um, begins to, the demographics are shifting, 
uh, slowly but surely, um, we are having more conversations and there's even research on the culture of the Insider Foundations and um, even a, a calling out that's beginning, beginning to happen to call out leaders and hold them accountable who might be um, um, acting uh, abusive in their roles. Um, I think that's going to push us forward. And that's really uncomfortable. It's like we're putting the family business out on front street. But I think that that type of transparency um, from the inside is going to be required to really push us and get us there. I think we also are going to have to um, think about an external strategy. Uh, you know, that might be organizing or, or, you know, even to the point of legislation that may happen to really push us to get there faster. You know, I am open to the idea of legislation that would uh, require a higher percentage payout of philanthropic resources. Um, in the U.S., we have what is called the minimum payout rule, uh, where uh, only 10% of philanthropic assets at a private foundation um, are required to be paid out. And so mm -hmm. we're looking at 90% of those assets uh, being uh, held up and um you know, and uh, basically in Wall Street, and in investments that are focused on building additional capital for for those institutions, and so I think it's a very easy thing to consider increasing the minimum payout rule. Like, why are we so so? Um, you know, it, it seems sort of ridiculous to me that we have organizations with uh, billions of dollars who are only paying out a small percentage of that to community, um, and yet getting tax breaks for uh, the billions of dollars that are not invested into public causes. So those are easy kind of, you know, easy type of legislation. Um, there might be also either internal or external pressure around what the governance of these organizations look like. We're still looking at like 90% of the boards of directors of foundations being white and not reflecting the demographics in the community. And so I think, um, you know, I, I write in the book that, you know, I would be uh, supportive of thinking about legislation that would require foundations to have, um, you know, uh, a, a larger per, or percentage or a percentage of people of color or people with lived experience uh, that, that reflect the communities they're serving. That's not something that's atypical to other types of institutions in the U.S. If you are an organization that receives federal money, often uh, they are going to collect demographic data about your governance. And uh, for example, federally qualified health centers in the U.S. are required um, that 51% of their boards be patients in those clinics. And so those are the types of um, changes that I think that we can either internally or externally through pressure consider making that would have a profound impact on how we operate and where uh, philanthropic capital is, is, is going. Mm. On that front around some of those really tangible changes, particularly on the legislation front, how do we navigate and, and push these conversations forward in, in our current political climate? You know, it's really a tough one. Um, I will say that in the current administration, um, whether folks in philanthropy are conservative or progressive, the current administration in the U.S. has not been, um, you know, supportive or, or helpful for our causes. We see that uh, a recent report came out that giving, um, individual giving in the U.S. is down, and that's because some, some recent changes to, uh, you know, legislation surrounding charitable causes. I also think that uh, because 
in this current administration, uh, the safety net is being stripped away and budgets are being cut. And we're seeing more and more people um, need services because of our, the, the growing uh, gap and the racial wealth uh, divide here in the U.S., um, that more and more folks are looking for, for money and looking for resources. Mm-hmm. And the demand on philanthropy has increased for support from the, from the nonprofit social sector to, to respond to that. Um, because of that, I think that there are those in Congress who are also looking around to where can we get this money, right? And foundations are sitting on $900 billion in assets. Wow. Um, that, uh, that's resources, again, that could have gone to help subsidize uh, these budgets. Uh, more and more, people are aware of what's happening in philanthropy and are aware of foundations. Um, I remember when I started in the sector 15 years ago, uh, when I said that I worked in philanthropy, no one really knew what that was. Uh, people barely knew what a nonprofit was. Hmm. And so now, uh, current day, because uh, philanthropy is, is, is known uh, in this last election with, when there were scandals around the Clinton Foundation and uh, the Trump Foundation, many people in the general public began to pay attention to what are these foundations and what are they doing and why do they have money and why are they not paying taxes? Um, where is their money going? So uh, I do think that that public awareness um, of what foundations are doing is going to potentially lead to more scrutiny on how we are showing up and how we are using these assets. Um, I do think that, uh, you know, I see that as a positive thing. I think that we should be more accountable to the public, um, seeing that these resources um, are, you know, um, are, are sheltered from taxation. Uh, you know, so it, it's hard for me, it's hard to say, I think, that uh, on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, that there would be people potentially in favor of, um, you know, seeing foundations put more money in the community. Um, I think that in general, folks might see that as a good idea. Um, I actually think the pushback from that might come more from within the sector. Um, foundations ourselves have not really led an, an effort uh, to change that. And we actually have the right to give above the minimum payout rule if we so choose. Mm-hmm. That payout rule, for example, you know, is a minimum minimum payout rule, 10%. We have the right to pay out more if we so choose. And so um, that's where um, we're seeing, you know, even without legislation, some foundations are stepping forward um, and saying that, you know, because of this political time, the attack on our communities, what we're seeing happening, um, horrific, you know, demonstrations of white supremacy, we need to be moving money to the front lines uh, for folks who are fighting for human rights and civil rights and for social justice. And so many foundations are taking it on themselves to actually move um, resources above the minimum payout requirements. Um, but, you know, I do think it, it, it's a tough fight. Uh, anything that is going to lean toward uh, progress um, in this in this moment, it, it's really um, a tough fight. We are mostly kind of in a, a position of defense. Um, and so um, I hope that foundations across the U.S. and beyond and Canada and elsewhere are really, um, you know, taking their heads out the sand and understanding that uh, we have a role to play in this political environment to protect people, um, to move resources to the safety net, and I'm hopeful that that's happening because things are so terrible 
right now uh, in the world that even people with privilege and even people with wealth are beginning to fear uh, or feel uh, the anxiety and the pressure um, of what's happening um, because we all know that uh, the U.S. and many other places were not headed toward uh, a good future if we don't make some significant changes. Mm. And just, I guess, amidst this this climate and and what we're up against what what is giving you energy in in the work right now you know i think for me um a couple of things one is um it's a good day to be indigenous i've never been more proud to be uh native american and um i'm i'm really just inspired by the resilience of my people, mm-hmm. of the actions, you know, you know, the organizing, the, the boldness that's happening. Um, I feel like the world is looking to indigenous people now in ways that they never have before um, for um, an understanding of our teachings and our worldview um, and, you know, our values that have really sustained us for so long. Um, and there's an awakening and a desire to kind of go back to some of that um, you know, while we're looking to the future, understanding that our, our answers might be in the past. So mm. I'm super excited about that. I, there are so many uh, Natives that um, I am building with and connecting with that are just doing amazing work. And so I'm, I'm, I'm eager to, um, you know, just continue to build with my relatives and, um, you know, shine. Um, it's a moment where we are... Um, you know, our voices are being heard and we're, we're not quite as invisible as we have been in the past. Yeah. So that gives me hope because I, I really, really believe that um, solutions to a lot of the problems we're looking for are looking to address um, um, lie in Native and Indigenous communities. So that's, um, that's where I'm finding my medicine and my healing, um, any chance I have to be among my people. Um, and uh, that vision just keeps getting reignited, you know, in every in every moment. Amazing, amazing. Would any uh, initiatives or organizations or people that you'd want to amplify or, or, or give a shout out to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, um, one thing be- um, I do need to correct myself. I think I said earlier that the minimum payout rule was ten percent. It's um, it's actually five percent. It's even it's even um, lower. Right. Than so. For the record, um, let folks know that the federal payout for in the U.S. is 5%. Um, so uh, it's not hard for foundations that they wanted to to pay more than that, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, there, are, uh, there are many organizations, but let me name a few that are doing some fantastic work that I think um, people should look to. Um, you know, in terms of supporting Native organizing um, work and you know, people working on the front lines, um, I chair the board of an organization called Native Americans in Philanthropy, and we have a fund called the Generation Indigenous Fund that um, is moving grants and resources to young people and other Native leaders around the U.S. who are organizing across um, all types of issues. You can check that out at nativephilanthropy.org. Um, another organization that's doing some fantastic work, fundraising and moving money and investments um, in um, across Indian country, and um, as a matter of fact, right now they are uh, raising money and supporting folks working in Hawaii to protect the sacred sites there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Indian Collective, um, the letter N, the letter D, and the letter N, Indian Collective. 
Um, fantastic organization that is really working to build power um, and uh, to decolonize all across the U.S. and beyond. Um, and so check them out for a place for investment, um, but also a place to just keep up. They have a fabulous um, you know, podcast and um, social media that to stay on top of all types of issues happening um, in terms of advocacy and, and Native Indigenous communities. And then last, I would say, um, for decolonizing wealth, um, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, share a little bit about the work we're building now. If you go to decolonizingwealth.com, we're also in the process of raising money. The proceeds from the book of, um, that we're selling, as well as T-shirts that are available on our website, go to support various Native youth organizations, um, including the Generation Indigenous Fund that I mentioned. Um, we are currently in the process of partnering with investors and looking for additional investors uh, to build out a curriculum around the book, um, a toolkit, workshops, online curriculum, um, as well as to launch uh, a fellowship program to support um, different Indigenous leaders who have amazing um, um, you know, projects happening around regenerative economies and investment. So we're looking for partners who are interested in that type of work, um, as well as um, soon we'll be announcing uh, the launch of a brand new uh, national and maybe international uh, giving circle for Native Americans. And so we will be offering, uh, inviting Native folks, Indigenous folks to join us in, in giving either monthly or annually um, where we're putting our resources together to support our people. Mm-hmm. So this will be a fund that is, you know, by Natives, um, by Indians for Indians um, <laughs> to, uh, to really support our communities and to demonstrate uh, to the world that we are, uh, we are actually moving our own money and resources to support our people. And so those are just a couple things that are coming. Uh, and again, you can check that out on decolonizingwealth.com. Thank you so much. And thank you so much again for, for making the time for, for this conversation. Thank you for, for your work. I think it's, it's really, really moving the dial and shifting the conversation in a really positive way. And I'm just, yeah, really grateful for, for all your efforts in this space as we look to continue to, to decolonize. So thank you. Thank you, Alexander. It's a pleasure to talk with you. On behalf of CKX, I want to thank Edgar again for making the time and space for this conversation. Links to some of the projects and initiatives discussed in this episode are included in the show notes, as well as a link to the Decolonizing Wealth website, where you can find additional resources and support this critical work moving forward. CKX Questions is a podcast from CKX, Community Knowledge Exchange. The intro and outro music for CKX Questions is the song Good Vibes from Broken Parts' self-titled album. Be sure to check out the link in the show notes to support their amazing work. Until next time, take care, and let's take care of each other.